I'd like for you to turn to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. I think that we can, uh, honestly, we can all agree that we're all products of our culture and we um, are shaped by the influences of and affected by society around us. And most of us bear the marks of our culture more than we are shaped by our values, sadly enough. That we look more like um, the world than we care to admit. We bear the marks of our culture. And one of the uh, marks of culture, marks of our society, is the love of luxury. We've learned to live in luxury. We have so much relative to the world. We are rich. All of us are wealthy. And we long for and we crave after the life of luxury. Um, there's a hunger in everybody for luxury. Um, I think that uh, it's evident that some of us believe that power and luxury is an inalienable right. And one of the reasons sociologists tell us that there was such devastation in the Los Angeles riots was that people were seizing upon the opportunity for, for those things in life they'd not had but always wanted. And as they observed on television the lifestyles of the rich and famous, when the opportunity became available, they seized on it because actually I have a right to it just as much as the rich and the famous. We crave it. To paraphrase Mark Twain, he said, we don't know what, quiet, what we're hungry for, but it is so great that our souls are restless. Um, the craving of luxury. Now there are some evidences of luxury. I think these evidences are apparent. One of them is, and all of them have to do with attitudes. One of the evidences of luxury is that everything is meant to make me happy, um, to bring some measure of happiness. Does my job make me happy? Does this relationship and, that I'm in, am I happy in this relationship? If I'm not happy, I wanna, I'm out of here. I want another relationship. I, I believe that whatever there is in life, it ought to make me happy. And we tend to choose happiness over joy. Now joy is not the absence of pain. Joy is the presence of God. And if push comes to shove and I have to choose between God, His presence, and happiness, I'm going to choose happiness. Because I believe that whatever there is in life, it's here to make me happy. That's the philosophy of those who crave luxury. A second evidence of luxury is the avoidance of pain. I want to... I don't want it to be involved in anything that causes pain. And I'm looking for that which dilutes pain. That's why there's such a demand for alcohol and drugs. Give me something that will dull the pain. I don't want anything in life that is painful. If you can give me a diet that's not painful, I'll take it in a minute. I mean, 
I don't want one if it's going to be painful. If you can tell me how to have a relationship that brings no pain, I'll take that relationship. And if you can show me how that I can get ahead in life without pain, I'm ready for that. The tendency to avoid pain, some psychologists have said, is the basic cause of all human mental illness. It's what we call denial. I want to ignore and avoid all forms of suffering. Um, and so I come out for football, but I, uh, I'd like to be able to know that it's not going to cost me anything. Third evidence of luxury is the tendency to choose eros over agape love. Now you know that word, you've heard it enough to know that eros, eros is that which causes or brings pleasure. If it feels good, do it. I want maximum pleasure. And whatever will guarantee me maximum pleasure, I'll take it in a moment. Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Doesn't matter if it squares up with the Word of God or not. If it brings me pleasure, I want it now. I want maximum pleasure. A couple of years ago, Ted Koppel, believe it or not, was addressing the uh, graduating class at Duke University. This is what he said, a part of what he said. Listen to, what, listen to this quote. We have actually convinced ourselves that slogans will save us. Shoot up if you must, but use a clean needle. Enjoy sex whenever and with whomever you wish but wear a condom. No, the answer is no. Not because it isn't cool or smart or because you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward, but no because it's wrong. Because we have spent 5,000 years as a race of rational human beings trying to drag ourselves out of the primeval slime by searching for truth and moral absolutes. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It is a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not ten suggestions. If it feels good, do it. The fourth evidence of Luxury is instant gratification. I mean, why should I wait for, to buy something when I can afford it if I can charge it? I cannot tell you how wonderful it was when I discovered charging. I was, I was already married and in college. And I went down, I was looking at a television, and they had this old beat-up television there that they would sell us, and I could afford it. When I got ready to pay for it, he said, would you like to charge it? Would you like to open a charge account? I literally, true story, had to ask what that was. My father did not believe in, in, in charging anything. I've, I've never done that before. Had never seen it. True story. And I said, well, you know, what is that? And they said, well, he, the, the, the salesman said, well, we'll just open up a charge account and you don't have to pay for it. And, 
And, and then he went on to explain. He said, you know, in about six months, why, we'll send you a bill and you can start, you know, m- monthly payments. The television didn't even last six months, but I, I thought it was amazing. Instant gratification. Why should I wait until I get married for sex when I can have it now? Why should I wait until I can afford something if I can charge it? And I'm constantly feeding this growing need for more, more instant gratification. And somebody wrote a little poem like this, instant breakfast, instant life, anything easy, that's what we like. Fast food places, banks with no line, anything easy, that'll do fine. Microwave ovens, mom's dream come true. Put it on credit, take it with you. drive through car wash, only $3.98. Very convenient, the American way. Polaroid camera, remote garage door, instant credit at the Kmart, Kmart store. Avon lady, right at the front door, home computers, who could want more? Instant Christians, change overnight. Anything easy, that's what we like. Help me, Lord, show me how. Give me patience, and I want it now, instantly. I want those instantly. Now, there are some enemies to luxury. Listen to me carefully. One of the enemies of luxury is unexpected interruptions, things that get in the way. Psychologists have been debating about what is called the frustration-aggression hypothesis. The frustration-aggression hypothesis is based on this, that I believe that there is a goal that I can achieve if you don't get in the way. And anything that stands in the way of the goal that I believe I can achieve becomes this frustration-aggression object that I I can't live with. It's what Moses battled with the people of God as he led them across the wilderness. They had this goal, this dream of a land flowing with milk and honey, and there were always barriers in the way, and they always blamed Moses for them. Frustration. There was frustration and aggression. Things that get in the way. I believe that I can, I could do well in school if I just didn't have this test, so I'm going to cheat, you know, that kind of thing. Second enemy of luxury is poverty. It sure doesn't sit well with luxury when you don't have much money and you can't afford it. But the amazing thing about all this, now watch this, that when we look at these things that are a part of luxury, it's interesting that these are the things that we tend to carry into our love for Christ. And we reason Would Jesus ask me to give up these things in order to follow Him? Surely Jesus wouldn't ask me to give up these things to become a Christian. And they almost, in fact, they become the incentives that we use to entice people to follow Christ. If you'll just follow Jesus, it's a life of luxury. God will bless you. I mean, if you just commit your life to Jesus Christ, He'll just pour into your life all the good things that everybody wants. I see it on television all the time. And I listen to people constantly talking about the fact 
that I believe that if I really give my life to Jesus Christ, I can have friends and I can have wonderful relationships and God will bless my life with good things. It's the constant um, uh, motivation for some of us that the incentive to get people to follow Jesus is to promise them happy trails ahead. How else would, why else would anybody follow Jesus? And it's a far cry from what Bonhoeffer was talking about when he said, when Christ called a man, he bid him come and die. Now when Jesus began this ministry in the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew, I'm getting to this, what I'm going to read here in a minute. The fourth chapter of the book of Matthew, he began his public ministry with the word repent. Amazing, repent. And he walked along this you know, this road, and he encountered people, and the first thing he said to them, him, to them, first word he spoke as he called men to follow him was to repent. Now, I don't know whether we understand what that word means. I, uh, I saw a guy on television one not long ago, and he, he said, you know, you know what, you sinners need to repent, and everybody laughed. I suppose it was a word that, you know, comedy word. Some of us have the idea that the word repent means to bargain or to make some kind of concession with God. The word means to have a change of attitude and heart. It means not just to be sorry for our sin, it means to be so sorry for our sin that we'll do something about it and that we'll turn in life as the result of a change of heart. We'll, we'll change our lifestyle. I had a late night call not long ago, true story. And I'm not going to divulge anything about this because that, this has been so recent and um, it relates to somebody in college. I had a late night call and the person at the other end of the line was sobbing and said, could I meet you? I need to pray with you. And I said, well, why don't you come to my house? And so she did. And I went to the front door and invited this young lady in, the first time I'd ever, ever seen her, as far as I know. And she sat down in my living room. She said, I've been to your church. She said, I'm a senior in college. And then she began to tell me the story. She said she grew up in a Christian home. And she, uh, her parents were devout, devoted Christians. And she was a Christian, grew up in a Christian environment, got off to school and got away from God. I have never in my life, and I'm an old semi-old uh, guy, I have never ever in my life ever talked to anybody who had a more broken and contrite heart. I mean God had broken her heart. And she said, I cannot go on like, I'm, like, like this. I cannot continue like I am. She said, I have been deceitful. I have lied. I've lied to my parents. I've lied to my my boyfriend, I've lied. He said, I've lived a lie. And she said, for a year, God has been breaking my heart. And she said, I cannot go on like this. I cannot live any longer like I'm living. And we talked about what it means to be forgiven. And I quoted 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you know that, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we talked about, what are we going to do now? And she said, I've already called my parents. And I've already asked their forgiveness. And I'm going to ask the people I've hurt's forgiveness. And she said, I want 
I want you to know that my life from this night on is different. And when Jesus called men, he called them to that kind of, that kind of heart, that kind of attitude. I want, I want to follow Jesus more than I want anything in this world. And if it means that I must make a complete reversal of my lifestyle to follow him, I'm ready. And that's what he started out with. That's the front door of discipleship. But the problem is that they came out of the woodwork, did these people, to follow Jesus. I call them flamboyant followers, and they followed him because to be with him was to be where healing occurred, and to be with him was to be where bread was broken, and people were fed with a meager amount. And so they came out of the woodwork to follow him. And in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel, he began to prove his, word, his, his ability to communicate. What a preacher he was, a communicator par excellence. He was so impressive that the people left everything just to listen to him. And so he'd sit down with multitudes of people and he'd get out in a boat and drift out a little ways from the shore and without amplification he'd speak to these crowds on the, on the hillside and he would talk for hours and they'd come back after lunch to hear more. They would just hang on every word he said and they were coming from everywhere to follow him and to see him and to get a look at him. And then he comes to chapter 8. And at verse 18, this is what he says. I want us know, to go no further than this. I want us to set the record straight before we go any further than this. I want us to see what's really involved here in following me. I want you to get some facts about what it means to be a follower of mine. Verse 18, look at it, of chapter 8. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Fact number one. Following Christ is not necessarily comfortable. Following Christ is not necessarily comfortable. Now this man who came running up to Jesus, this person, whoever he was, came out of the context of people following Jesus for what Jesus was able to give them. For every man wants luxury, a comfortable living, and he wants to be happy, and he wants instant gratification, and they thought they had it in him. And so they, he came, in essence, to say this. Watch this. Here's a man, if I hang up with him, if I catch on with him. I can wrap my life in luxury from now on. I'll have plenty to eat. I'll have power. This man is the most popular person in the world. If I tie up to him, I'll have exactly what everybody wants. And Jesus said this. 
You need to come to terms with creature comforts because we're not into creature comforts. Now, I need to say this in a way that's understood, can be understood. If you're following Jesus Christ for what you can get out of Jesus Christ, you're following Jesus Christ for the wrong reason. He's not into creature comforts. Second fact. In verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now there was this concern of this disciple for his home and it crowded out his choice of following Christ. As long as he could stay with his own agenda, as long as he could take care of his own plans, as long as he could follow Christ without a problem, he was ready to follow him. Here is the fact. Listen to this fact. Following Christ means a commitment to follow him without reservation and without interference. I need to say that again. Following Christ means following Him without reservation and without interference. And if you can't come all the way, you don't need to come at all. For if you can't follow Jesus without reservation and without interference, then you don't need to take the first step at all. I think that we have made it so easy for people to become a follower of Jesus Christ that we have rolled out the red carpet in the aisles of our churches and have said to them, all you've got to do is follow Jesus. It's an either or. You come all the way or don't come at all. Now these are harsh words it seems, let the dead bury the dead. But what Jesus was saying is this, there must be absolute abandon and absolute loyalty. And if you come to Christ and you have plans that take priority, forget it. I want you to turn to a, pa a verse, a passage that's my, one of my favorites. It's found in the old book of Colossians. Would you take time to look at Colossians chapter 1? In the first chapter of the book of Colossians, he's establishing what I believe to be some of the greatest theology concerning the deity of Christ, and it's written in the, in the context of, of, uh, uh, of an agnostic uh, uh, Gnosticism. And he says in verse 13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And He is the image of the invisible God. He makes the invisible God visible. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. He is the agent of creation, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things have been created by Him and for Him. He is the agent and the object of all creation. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is also the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here's the, here's the kicker. So that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. And that is the explanation of human history. That's the explanation of the history of your life. Everything that has happened to you to this point in time and everything that will happen to you after this night is over is in order that Jesus Christ might be first in your life because if Jesus Christ is not first place, He wants no place at all. And then He comes to the third fact. There's a shift in the story and in verse 23 of chapter 8, look at this little shift of emphasis, watch this. And when He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him, and behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but He Himself was asleep. And they came to Him and awoke Him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And He said to them, Why are you afraid? Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds, and the sea became perfectly calm. Third fact is that following Christ is not conventional nor predictable. Now I think I uh, owe it to you to explain that a little bit. Not conventional or predictable. I think sometimes that we think that you can, you know, that Christianity can be put in a little formula, a little box, and everything is predictable. One plus one is always two. I'm, I must say, from my own experience, both professionally and, um, and experientially, that there is no way that Christianity can be put into a conventional formula. It just is not true that when you become a Christian, all of the questions are answered and all the mysteries are solved. As a matter of fact, some of the people who grapple the most with the mysteries of life are the godliest people. Why does this happen to, you know, why is it this way? Why is this like it is? And when you be, a, become a follower of Jesus Christ, you sometimes set sail on a sea of trouble and struggles for the experience of following Jesus is unconventional because the Christian life, are you listening? Because the Christian life is a life of faith. I'm going to follow Jesus in the dark. I'm going to follow Jesus when there is no reason to follow Him except my faith. I'm going to follow Jesus when every question I have becomes two questions with no answers. Because the Christian life, as I understand the Christian life, is a life of faith. 
Now, I want to read to you something that happened to me this week, my quiet time. Yeah, I do have a quiet time. Occasionally, I have a quiet time. I was reading in the same chapter in the book of Luke, and I, I want to read, it's actually the book of Luke chapter 8 has a, another version, obviously, of the same account. It's exactly the same verses, really. It's just instead of Matthew 8, 22, it's Luke 8, 22. And I was reading along the other morning in my quiet time with my little diary, and this is what I read. Now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended from the, upon the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to him and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm, and he said to them, Where is your faith? Now I'm reading that along there. Watch this. And I'm reading where these disciples woke Jesus up and said, We're going to die. We're going to drown. Who's the we? Everybody in the boat. Now, I had always read this story as though these disciples woke Jesus up and said, Jesus, don't you care? We disciples are going to drown. I have a feeling they thought he's going to drown too. Better wake up, Jesus, and do something because we're going to go under. And the implication is, is they had... They had the fear, not just that they were going to drown, but that he was going to drown. The truth is that you're not going to drown unless he does. Fact is, you're not going to go under unless he does, if you're with him. Now, there's going to be a lot of things that you and I are going to encounter in this life. I mean, Whatever is ahead of us, there are some things that are ahead of us that are not very pleasant. It's not always comfortable to follow Jesus. But let me tell you this, there's not, you're not going to perish unless He does if you're in Him. And His question was this, where is your faith? Can I ask you that question tonight? Can I ask you older folks sitting on this side, where is your faith? Is your faith in the boat or is it in the captain of the boat? Now facing the facts, here it is. Five times in the New Testament, Jesus used this term, ye of little faith. And every time he used the term, ye of little faith, he used it directed toward his own disciples. And what he was saying is this, gentlemen, if you're going to follow me, the key is verse 26, back of chapter 8 of Matthew. If you're going to follow me, the key is this, that you put your 
faith in me. You trust me. You trust me. I want your confidence. I want you to put your trust in me. Here's my hand. I want you to take it. Students, high school students, and college students, may I make this invitation to you tonight for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ and trust Him to meet every need you have. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the call that Jesus gives to a life of faith and trust. And we know that you are one that we can count on, depend on. And I pray, God, that this will be a beginning where each of us would say, I'm going to place my faith in Jesus Christ. Him. I will count on and depend on. For I pray in His name and for His sake.